If you've got a Bible this morning, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Is where we're going to be this morning for our text as we continue to work our way through Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through Mark chapter 12, verse 12 is where we're going to read this morning. And it's where, from the text from which our sermon will come. So beginning in Mark chapter 11 and verse 27, Mark records these words. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man... They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is God's word. You know, in our Western modern American mindset, we struggle with authority. <laughs> we are a nation uh, that was founded on the principle of rebellion against the king. And so whenever it comes to authority in our lives, oftentimes we wrestle submitting to authorities. And Jesus here in Mark's Gospel uh, has His authority questioned by the religious leaders of His day. And in the same way that they struggle to submit to the authority of God and His appointed Son, so also do we at times struggle to submit to God's authority in our lives as well. And so this morning in the text, what I want us to see um, is that is, is these three R's, right? That's what they teach you to do in seminary. You give like three words that start with the same letter, okay? And so the, the, the right that Jesus has to exercise authority, the rejection of his authority, and ultimately his invitation for us to resign to his authority, resignation to it. So this, these ideas of right, rejection, and resignation, so when it comes to authority, the authority of God in our lives, the authority of Jesus as God's only beloved Son, how do we respond to His words? How do we respond to His teaching? How do we respond to His authority? 
And so the first question is this, what gives him the right to exercise authority? And I want you to know something this morning, that Jesus' authority, it is sourced in his identity. It is sourced in his identity. Listen, last week we saw Jesus go into the court of the Gentiles in the temple and he starts turning over tables and he brings the whole temple operation there to a screeching halt. And he issues a scathing rebuke of the religious leaders of his day. He said, you've turned the temple, which was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the peoples, all the nations, all the tribes, all the tongues, and you've made it into a den of robbers. Now, the Sanhedrin, which was made up of the chief priests, scribes, and elders, they took notice of what Jesus had done. Right? It did not escape their purview or their, their, their line of sight. And so here now in our text today, they go to Jesus uh, because it's gotten, gotten their attention as he confronted the soullessness of the temple. And in response, the chief priests, elders, and scribes, who met at the Sanhedrin, they come to Jesus and they say, where do you get the right? Where do you get the authority to do these things? And by these things, I believe he's, they're talking about the actual turning over tables and the rebuking of the temple operations, but also the teaching that he gave with authoritative voice in the life of Israel as a rabbi who was traveling the, 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 the land, teaching in their synagogues and in their streets with authority unlike their scribes had taught. So they're asking Jesus, where do you get the authority to do these things? And Jesus says, I'll see your question and raise you one of my own. Okay. He says, you answer my question and I'll answer yours. And so Jesus says, you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Give me an answer and I'll give you an answer. And they said, we don't know. Because if they, he had him trapped, right? Because if they responded one way saying, hey, it was from heaven. Then he would say, well, why didn't you listen to him? Why didn't you respond to him? He was calling you to repent and yet you refused and rejected him. And if they say from man... The people perceived John to be a powerful prophet, so the people would rise up and revolt against them. And so they're stuck in a, between a rock and a hard place, so they say, I don't know. But why does Jesus hinge his authority upon their interpretation of John's baptism back in Mark chapter 1? Because in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we read these words. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And Jesus says to the Sanhedrin, Was that from God or was that from man? And Mark intends to show us that the authority that Jesus possesses is rooted or sourced in His identity that was pronounced over Him at His baptism as the Spirit descends and the Father declares, this is my beloved Son, my unique Son, my only Son, the Son whom I love. Fast forward in Mark's Gospel to Mark chapter 9 and verse 7. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, when the disciples, some of the disciples are there with Jesus as they see Him transfigured in the fullness of His glory before their eyes, it says, a cloud overshadowed them in Mark 9, 7, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my what? Beloved Son. God declares once again, this is His Son. And then He says this, listen to Him. He has authority. He has the right 
to teach with authority and to exercise authority over all because He is the firstborn over all creation, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. Right? He's the firstborn from the dead, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. But He is the one who has all the rights, all the privileges, all the authority over all of creation in the same way that a firstborn child would have had authority over all the inheritance of the Father. So Jesus... By virtue, of his author, by virtue of his identity, has this authority. And so whenever the Sanhedrin begins to question and press Jesus on his authority, he says, I have not come here for you to question my authority. I've come here to question yours. I've come here to question yours. So where does this authority come from? It comes from his identity. And yet they did not receive this well, and neither do we. Neither do we, because humanity's, listen, humanity's response throughout all of human history has been to reject the authority of God and the authority of His beloved Son. That is humanity's response. It is rejection. Listen, in the parable that Jesus tells following this exchange with the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin comes to understand that what Jesus is saying, He's directing particularly to them as the leaders of Israel. Okay? that they are these tenant farmers who reject the authority of the owner over the vineyard that he has made. Now in the Old Testament, the idea of a vineyard uh, was tied up in the identity of Israel. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1-7. to He says this, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his, his vineyard. Speaking of God's vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. Sound familiar to the parable Jesus just told? And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Untamed. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What, was, what more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it, I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and the briars and thorns shall grow up. I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard, verse 7, Isaiah 5, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. In the Old Testament, Israel is pictured as God's vineyard, as His people, as His possession that He carefully carved out and orchestrated. And yet whenever He looked for them to bear fruit, they bore not the fruit that He intended them to bear, but it was wild, out of control, untamed, in rebellion and rejection of His authority. And in the parable that Jesus tells Israel being rep- God's people being represented by this vineyard, the tenant farmers to whom He entrusted to work the soil and gather the fruit are indeed the religious leaders of His day. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. In fact, at the end of the story, they go, you know what? He's talking about us. That's how they understand it. Right? 
Now the landowner decides when it comes time for harvest, this is the way things worked back in that day. This is a very common practice of a landowner having land, preparing it, and then handing it over to tenant farmers who were leasing from him, and they would work the land, they would keep a portion of the produce, and return a portion of the produce back to the owner. So the harvest season comes, the owner says, I've got to go collect my portion of the produce, so he sends a servant. And they beat him and drive him away empty-handed. So he says, well, I didn't listen to that guy, so I'll send another one. And then another one. And then another one. And another and another and another. And they all experience the same thing. Either they're beaten and sent away empty-handed, or some, he says, are killed. They strike them on the head and treat them shamefully. They insult them or dishonor them. And so the gracious and long-suffering landowner sends more and more servants, so some they beat and some they kill. Listen, these faithful servants who have come to the vineyard to collect the produce are indeed the prophets that God sent in various times to call His people to Himself. These faithful servants in Hebrews 1 reminds us that long ago God spoke to the fathers by prophets at different times and in different ways. And yet, how did Israel treat them? Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 26 says, But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. Hebrews 11:35 to 35-38, it sadly records the receptions of the prophets in Israel's day. It says some men were tortured, not accepting release, so they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, and they were sawed in two. They have died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and in holes in the ground. In Jeremiah 20, verse 2, we see that Jeremiah was beaten and he was put in stocks. The Jewish tradition said Isaiah was indeed sawn in two and Zechariah was stoned to death between the altar and the temple and the porch. And Jesus, listen, recent days to Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist, prophet, off with his head. And Jesus addresses this tragic reality in Matthew chapter 23 when he says, This is why I'm sending you prophets, sages, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogues and hound from town to town. So all the righteous bloodshed on the earth will be charged to you from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. This is how Israel treated the servants who came time and time, and time, and time again. Yet in God's gracious patience, He was extending repeatedly, repeatedly appealing to them, but rebellious sinners continued to resist Him and reject His authority. They took what was His and claimed it for their own. For themselves. And listen, I want you to know something, church. That the response of these tenants, of these religious leaders in the story, is the response of all humanity throughout history to the authority and claims that God lays upon our lives. It's how every man, woman, and child subsequent to the fall has responded to the claim of God's authority over them. You see it from Genesis 3 forward. And our fallen, listen, our fallen preset is to cast off any and all restraint, external restraint and external authority, and to be guided and governed only by what we feel inside. That is our preset out of the box. 
You don't believe me? Watch Finding Nemo. Okay? Finding Nemo. Uh, in, in, in the movie Finding Nemo, we are introduced to a number of endearing characters, right? Of course, you, first of all, you've got Nemo, who's got the little gimpy fin. He's a preteen clownfish who wants to kind of experience the world for himself and not submit to his father's authority. Right? He goes up and touches the boat. Uh, you got, he pushes the boundaries. You've got Dory, who's the absent-minded angelfish, okay, who never really quite knows where she is or what she was doing, can, forgets constantly. You've got Marlin, the helicopter dad, who's super overprotective, right, and, and, and constantly drawing his son back from the drop-off. And yet, there is a group of characters we meet later in the movie that I believe exemplify the constant cry of the fallen human heart, and it's the seagulls. Remember the seagulls in the, in the movie Finding Nemo, right? You first introduced to them, they're on the rocks there out in the bay next to the buoy, and they're sitting there, and the pelicans are all talking about Nemo, who's going, you know, this, this grand rescue that's going on across the ocean as Marlin swims with Dory to find Nemo, and they're sitting there, the pelicans are talking about it, and one pelican has a crab, and he throws the crab over to the rocks where the seagulls are, and the seagulls go, mine, 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 mine. So they start chasing the crab, the crab tries to defend himself, and then jumps in the water, and they lose him. And then later on in the movie, Dory and, Nemo, and, and Marlin are laying on the docks there by the boats, and the seagulls surround them with that incessant cry of, mine, 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 mine. And listen, church, that is the constant cry of the human heart. Mine. I have authority. I am the owner the constant chirping that we feel inside. I have the right to do with my life as I choose, as I want, as I desire, in accordance with how I feel. We want to cast off any external authority and say those are not binding upon me, although it's the authority that extends from the one who formed us in his image. And it happens in so many ways. We do it with our money, we do it with our possessions, we do it with our time, and we do it with our bodies. We claim our, our, our money. Our, like even, even us saying our, right? Betrays the fact that we believe that we're not managers, we're not stewards, we're not tenants, but we are owners. It's mine. Our money. My money. My time. My possessions. My job. My children. We lay claim of ownership on all these things. Not recognizing that all these things are ultimately under God's authority. They are gifts from Him to be stewarded. Not things for us to grasp and control and hold on to. This has been humanity's response to the authority of God throughout human history. We don't see ourselves as stewards. We see ourselves as owners. Now listen, it's important to note that here in the text, God does not come to destroy the vineyard. The owner doesn't come to destroy the vineyard in the parable. But what he does is he says, I'm coming to destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others who would steward it well, who would manage it well, who would govern it well, who would lead it well, who would shepherd it well. In other words, the leadership of Israel was so corrupted by power and profit that needed to be done away with and new leadership needed to emerge, new leadership needed to be established. And listen, I would be remiss this morning 
if at this point I did not speak to what has taken place. And listen, I'm not talking about what took place in our capital over the course of the last week. I'm talking about what has taken place in churches over the course of this last decade. Over this last decade. Listen, I, 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 I want to be very clear this morning. Like, I've never had a political tribe. Okay? That may disappoint some of you. <laughs> Others of you may be exalted, like, super happy about that. I've never had a political tribe. I didn't have a political tribe 12 years ago. I didn't have a political tribe 8 years ago. I didn't have a political tribe 4 years ago. And today, I still don't have a political tribe. Okay? I want to be very clear about that. But what I did say from this pulpit four years ago, on the eve of Super Tuesday, was it is a, it's uns, it was, I, this is what I said, it was unsettling to me that you had church after church after church and leader in prominent evangelical institutions lining up behind an individual who launched his candidacy by saying he could go out into the streets of New York and shoot immigrants in the head and people would still vote for him. It was unsettling to me. After the election, I said God raises, and I believe this to this day, that God raises leadership and He pulls leadership down. He, 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 he exalts some and He humbles others. And I said God does that for two pur- one of two purposes, either to bless or to judge. One of the two. I knew what I believed then, and I still know what I believe today. And I do not say that, and, and, and don't hear me saying that I believe that the person who will be inaugurated on January 20th, God has put in a position as a blessing to us. Okay? Don't hear me say that. But what was unsettling to me particularly in this last cycle, was what took place in churches as prominent evangelical pastors and prominent evangelical professors and prominent evangelical seminary presidents said we have a binary choice. There's only one of two choices you can make, church. So choose the right one based on policy, not on character. And it was not a binary choice. There were other options on the ballot that could have been chosen. And I wonder, I wonder, uh, what I would love to see in some of those prominent pulpits and from some of those prominent professors and presidents is not them just crawfishing backwards slowly and slimily, but to actually come out and say, character matters. I was wrong. To assume that it didn't. And that's coming from somebody with no political tribe. God says the leadership in Israel had failed to shepherd them well. And I believe that has taken place in, our, in churches in our nation over the course of this last decade. Humanity's response has been to reject the authority of God. And when churches, leaders, Israel, in the church today, do so, when they do so, as you see in the book of Revelation, that God would choose to come and remove their lampstand. In other words, their influence, their light that they cast and shine forth. And my hope is would be that we would see repentance where it's needed 
And if not, that God would indeed remove. So how ought we to respond to this text? How ought we to respond? And I want to say this to you, this, this, this is the third R, and then we're done, right? Is that you resign to Jesus, yourself to Jesus' authority. You resign yourself to Jesus' authority. See, as these religious leaders hear the words of Jesus, they have a decision to make about how they will respond to Him. Jesus sets the parable before them. They come to understand He's talking about them. And they have a choice to make, to repent of their corruption and resign themselves to the authority of God's beloved Son, His only and unique Son, over them, or to take the Son and kill Him because He's a threat to their ownership of the vineyard. And it is clear which they choose from verse 12. Before you even get to the crucifixion, from verse 12, what are they doing? They want to arrest Him because He knows their talk. Jesus is talking about them. Right? They, they want to arrest Him, and they would arrest Him and kill Him. And Mark records this story to say to those who would read it and have ears to hear and eyes to see to put the same question before us. How will you respond to the authority of Jesus in your life? Will you resign yourself to Jesus' authority and yield? Or will you yield to the constant chirping of your human heart saying, mine, 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 mine. And I think the option that Mark would put before us is to say, resign. Don't cast off restraint, but allow His authority to govern your life. Right, tear down the fence lines in your life that have been built with the intention of keeping God from trespassing in your personal affairs. Right, because many of us have, still have fence lines in our lives right, that have posted signs all over them. In other words, God, you can come this far, but no further. Right? Because you're not going to get to this area. You're not going to address this aspect. I'm not going to allow you access to this corridor or this closet. I'm going to keep it for myself. So we put up fence lines and no trespassing signs. And a part of resigning to Jesus' authority is we're going to tear down those fences and allow God access into those areas that what He wants to do is not dominate you, but heal you. To make you fully human in areas in which your humanity has been eroded by your own mindness, your own ownership. He wants to heal those areas of your life. And so the way you go about tearing down those fences, let me give you two things this morning, and then we're done. Two applications. First of all, you've got to learn to rehearse the marvelous reversal of the Gospel. Rehearse the marvelous reversal of the Gospel. Listen, at face value, when you read this parable in Mark chapter 12, you you could come away confused about the intentions of the Father. Like when you, some people might say, well, you know, when you look at the parable, right, the, 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 well, that's just crazy. Like, why, what father in his right mind would send his beloved son, his only son, his unique son, to the same people who killed servant after servant after servant after servant? This guy must be crazy. Who's going to send their son to a people who's rejected the owner's authority over the vineyard? Isn't that the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. This guy must be crazy. Another option is to consider the father just to be calloused. Well, he must not really care about his son. It's like divine child abuse. I mean, how could he care about his beloved son if he sends him to those who have rejected his authority? He must not really care about his son. So either he's crazy or he's calloused. 
And yet I want you to consider there is a third option here. Not that the Father is crazy. Not that the Father is calloused. But that the Father is full of compassion. That He's full of compassion. And I believe that's what Jesus intends us to see in verse 10 when he quotes Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23, when he says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus goes back into Psalm 118 and he applies this verse to their rejection of his authority. And through the starting of the psalm, he says this was the Lord's doing. In other words, what took place, the rejection of Jesus' authority by the religious leaders in Israel's history, it was God's doing. That's what he says. It was the Lord's doing. And listen, this is not the only place that we encounter this truth. But we see it again in Acts chapter 2. Verses 22 and following, where Peter on the day of Pentecost stands before the people and he preaches a sermon, and this is what 